Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Quaybog Church podcast. At the end of this episode, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel or check us out on Facebook. That way you'll have access to fresh content every week. But most importantly, we hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey because our mission here at Quaybog is to help you worship, connect, and serve. Enjoy! Hey, hello everybody, Pastor Kyle here. Uh, this week we're looking at uh, two interesting concepts from the early accounts in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2. One, um, what's up with being single or divorced if we are designed to be compatible as man and woman? Right, where does that leave where does that leave you if you're single? Where does that leave you if, if you're divorced? Are you uh, less than? Because uh, um, somebody wrote in this week and their question was, if Adam didn't feel complete until he was joined with Eve, what does that mean for single or divorced people? Right? If that's a designed, what about those who aren't? And then secondly is the knowledge of uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. These two interesting trees that are plopped right there in the garden. What do they mean? Um, What do they represent? And what's going on there uh, with Adam and Eve's decision later in chapter three? And also, how does that maybe tie into uh, the rest of the way that the Old Testament unfolds and even all the way out to Revelation? As I've mentioned each week, you're going to see a lot of overlap with the book of Revelation and the book of Genesis. There are a lot of repeating themes. There are a lot of things that get wrapped up and tied up that happened in the book of Genesis um, in the book of Revelation. So it's pretty interesting to see that. So first, we'll jump into this first question because it's a good one. Uh, Again, so the question is, if Adam didn't feel complete until he was joined with Eve, what does that mean for single or divorced people? Well, first of all, you have to know that being single or divorced does not diminish your value uh, in God's eyes, nor does it mean that he can't or won't use you. Um, I want to refer you to a, a couple, well, a handful of people in scripture and also specifically a scripture passage. So let's tackle the issue of singleness first. So in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 25 through 38, you have Paul talking about being married and he's saying, he says something really interesting in here. He says, um, in light of uh, the present distress in verse 26, so I'm, I'm in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 26, and he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So are you married? Then stay married. If you're single, then stay single. And he kind of goes back and forth about just rethinking how we view things of this world. So he says some confusing things uh, in 29 through 31, like, you know, those who have wives live as, as though they don't. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Like Paul obviously doesn't want us to act in, in those opposite ways, right? He's, he's speaking in a way that's trying to get people to understand, like, like reevaluate how you see earthly things in light of the present distress, right? There was a lot of persecution happening. There was a lot of unknown about the end times that was happening. So in light of that, in light of, you know, Paul saying, hey, we need to kind of reevaluate our earthly structures and our earthly way of thinking, uh, particularly if the end is near and the gospel is real, right? We should be focused on that. We should be focused on what that means for our lives, and then where Paul gets uh, gets to eventually, which I think is interesting, he just says, uh, kind of in verse 32 through like kind of the end here, this section of 35, we'll say, um, he says, 
I don't want to, in verse 35, he kind of ends this little section. He says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay restraint upon you about marriage or being unmarried or all these other things, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So he's, then he says, you know, if you're betrothed and you don't want to get married, so if you're engaged and you don't want to get married, that's fine. Then don't get married. And if you're engaged and you want to get married, then go ahead. But he's saying, uh, and then he says in verse 20, uh, or verse 38, he who marries his betrothed as well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So the whole point of this passage, the whole point of this section here is him saying that if you're, if you're married, that's good. If you're not married, it's actually even better in light of gospel opportunities. Because he says in this section, like, he said, you're going to, um, you're going to want to focus a lot being married. You're going to focus a lot on your spouse, right? That's the nature of being married. You're going to pour into that person. And there's lots of earthly concerns that go with that. Paul says in this passage, but again, that the reason I read the passages I did is to highlight the fact that he said, Hey, both are good, but really though, in light of like gospel opportunities, being single is actually a little bit better because you can focus more on what God has given you. So again, there's no, like, you're, you're less than at all. And matter of fact, in scripture, it says there's actually more opportunity for God to use you in unique ways in that singleness. Now, that doesn't mean you have to remain single, though, as Paul says in here, right? That's not a command from the Lord that you need to be a nun or you need to act like a priest and never be married. You don't have to, you can choose to do that if you want, but you don't have to. And so um, I wanted to give some examples from scripture uh, that I had jotted down here, just to remind you that if you are single, that doesn't mean you're less than. First obvious, the most obvious one should be Jesus Christ, right? Jesus was never married and there's no indication right? No indication that he was less than as a human being. Uh, you'd be crazy as a Christian to think that, or you'd be crazy even approaching Christianity and maybe as not a Christian, it'd be crazy to think that Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, as the New Testament says, would be anything less than a fully fulfilled human being, right? So, to understand that first and foremost, I think is also to identify with your savior. If you are single to say, you know, this, this man, Jesus Christ was fully God and he was fully fulfilled. Uh, and he never, ever had a spouse, right? You, you see the fulfillment he had in serving others. You see the fulfillment he had fulfilling the calling of God on his life. Um, you see how he was with his disciples, how he poured into them, the relationships that he had. Of course, some of the disciples were single, obviously some of them were not, but, um, but right after him though, uh, is the apostle Paul, right? There's no indication that he had ever had any relationship like that. You know, I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe he was engaged at some point, who knows, but we know clearly that he he was not because he, he encourages people to be like him, to be celibate, to be single like him because it's devotion for the Lord and how that looks different. So there's like just, I mean, to take probably the two most prominent characters of the New Testament uh, and say neither one of these men were married and yet they lived a completely fulfilled life, right? And that's that's an important thing for us to think. Like, do you have to be married or do you have to be in a romantic relationship to be complete and to be fulfilled? Uh, clearly, the answer is no. But that interest, like that, uh, like brings up an interesting paradox, right? It's like, well, if that's how we're designed, are, don't I need to be married? 
or in a romantic relationship to be fulfilled if that's how I'm designed? No, because that's just the design. That's that's how God's blessing would come to humanity. That's how we would reproduce. That's how we would find our opposite, as Adam says, of Eve, right? One a helper corresponding to him. So if it does happen, that's how it needs to happen. That's where the design, the fulfillment, the purpose in that comes. But when Adam is saying he doesn't find one that corresponds to him, you, you, like I said, you can see these deep relationships that come in Jesus Christ, these deep and meaningful relationships that come. You know, when Paul talks about the people that have helped him and the people that have blessed him, fellow soldier, you know, in the faith, like these are, these are not light terms. These are people that the Apostle Paul, that Jesus Christ, are are living deep, meaningful relationships through, right? And so I think, again, it's important to think about the relationships you have in your life, the calling of God that he has on your life, because it's not guaranteed that any of us will find a romantic uh, partner, that we're going to find a marriage. Like, it's just, that's not anything, that's not a promise given in scripture. And so, be careful when you say that to other people or when you think that, that like, oh, God's going to provide, God's going to provide you a, a spouse. Because what if he doesn't? Well, that you've made up a promise on behalf of God that he never said. And then will you become upset about that? Right? What does that do to your faith? If in fact, he doesn't give you that, if that's not his will. Uh, and that's not, I get that. That's not easy. Right? I get as a married dude, um, that that is very much different for me. To, to say this as a married guy to maybe you, if you're watching and you're single, to say that you can still be fulfilled and that you don't need to have a spouse. I don't have that longing, but it doesn't make it any less true, right? doesn't make it any less true. I can't necessarily empathize with it, but it is, I know it to still be the truth because of people I've talked to that are single that understand this truth and have really settled into this idea of like, okay, I'm not going to define myself by a romantic relationship. So, um, some more characters from the, the Bible. Uh, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Uh, again, look at the calling on his life. This is a guy that was, like, I mean, found incredibly foundational to what was happening right prior to the exile of uh, Judah in the Old Testament. And he was a guy that was going to give truth and speak truth. And he wrote the book of Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations. He was incredibly important in that pivotal time of Israel's history. And God used a single guy to do that, right? And then there's also Elijah. I mean, everybody that is familiar with Old Testament stories, at least is going to know Elijah on the mountaintop, right? With the prophets of Baal and like this whole like Mount Carmel scene that was going on between the prophets and Elijah and just how brave he was and how prayerful he was. Uh, in the New Testament, the book of James says that he was a, a person just like us, a man just like us. And yet when he prayed, it didn't rain for three years. And so you've got, uh, you've got this single guy who God used in unbelievably powerful ways. So again, to say that single people are less than, uh, just not true to say that single people aren't going to be used by God. It's like, I think the evidence you see in scripture is quite the opposite, actually, that God tends to use really, really in powerful ways. He tends to use single people, right? Um, and then even Paul says it, it, it's almost to their advantage. So I just think that's one of those like really difficult ways to look at singleness, you know, it is to say, okay, I need to look past my emotion. I need to look past just where I am right now. And I need to say, all right, God, what do you have for me in this time, in this season, however long it may last, God, what are you doing in this time? Rather than just missing it by just kind of mourning your singleness, 
uh, it's like, I think what we get out of scripture is, hey, hey, no, 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 celebrate that time for however long it may last. Uh, celebrate what God's going to do in that time and through you during that time. Because what we see in scripture is, is not people just being thrown away because they're single, right? Because uh, they, these people change history, right? These, these single people change history. Now, to the uh, the second part, though, in divorce, um, that one is a little bit different. So those of of you watching, those of us that have been divorced, there are some things I think we need to keep in mind with that because divorce, um, here's the thing I've, I've heard it said as, divorce is not always um, a sin, but divorce is always because of a sin, right? So divorce is not always a sin, but it is always caused by a sin. That could be selfishness. It could be pride. It could be adultery. It could be um, financial unfaithfulness. It could be abuse. Um, it could be neglect. It could be, as scripture says, it could be um, an unbelieving spouse just walking away from a Christian. Um, there are a handful of reasons that that are legitimate reasons for divorce. But even if the you know the divorce is in, in God's eyes something that He said yes to. And we've got to be careful saying that. But even if it is one of those things, um, it's still a result of somebody's sin, right? Somebody in that relationship or something happened. And so that that's why we need to approach divorce carefully and not just be too willy-nilly about it. Because I do believe, and hear me out on this, I do believe in our culture, we are way too quick just to say, oh, things didn't work out, right? I mean, like love is a choice that we have to make and we have to sacrificially make that choice. And when people are unwilling to do that, that's when you're going to have things like divorce happen is when we are unwilling to sacrificially love that other person like Jesus did. Like that's the model he gives us in Ephesians 5, right? The husbands, you're supposed to sacrificially love your wife. And when we stop doing that, again, that's that's when we're ripe for bad things like divorce to happen. And that's, uh, again, I, th that's why we, I think we need to slow down when we have that conversation about divorce. But uh, it is something that Jesus does take seriously. Um, Matthew 4, or I'm sorry, John 4, you see that in the Samaritan woman at the well. You know, Jesus kind of highlights this woman's sin because she's had all these husbands and divorced all these husbands. And the man she's living with, he says, you know, that's not even your husband. So here you are five guys later. And what? And she's like, oh my gosh. And she tells everybody, oh, that's prophet. You know, this guy, he's the Messiah. He's told me everything I ever did my whole life. And really all we get out of a glimpse of that is just this like this divorce and remarriage thing and then living with a man. She's playing marriage now, right? But she's made, I don't know, maybe she's given up on marriage. And so she's just living with him. And so just by cultural necessity, perhaps she's living with him. But we get the idea that Jesus takes it pretty seriously because he calls it out in her and he does call it, it sin, right? And that's very, it's just convicting to her. It's not, he's not shaming her right? It's not like I'm walking away because this guy's just being a jerk. He's like, he's just, he's drawing out this sin in her life. And he's saying, look, that's not, not the way you should be. And then he's going to use that in the context to show his love and to show who he is to her. Uh, and then contextually speaking, another conversation that comes up is Matthew chapter 19, right? Jesus is presented, the religious leaders come and they kind of want to nail him on divorce. And so Jesus gets into this divorce conversation with them. And clearly Jesus sees this as a sin. This, he sees it as breaking a covenant. Um, and they're talking about the, the, the things that uh, Moses allowed. And, and he's saying, look, 
this was not the intent. Divorce was not the intent. Uh, yes, because of our hard hearts, there's been allowance for divorce. And in the Old Testament, especially, divorce papers were really to protect the woman so that she had some means of caring for herself and surviving after a divorce. You couldn't just throw her away and then leave that woman to basically just flounder and die. And so when Jesus is in this conversation with these religious leaders, he's like, look, your, your own hard hearts are making this whole conversation all out of whack. The whole point of marriage, Jesus says, is he takes us right back to Matthew or Genesis chapters one and two. And specifically, he quotes Genesis chapter two, where we were on Sunday. And he says, look, for this reason, a, father, a man's going to leave his father and mother, and then he's going to join together with his wife, right? He's going to be physically bonded through the act of sex with his wife. And so there's this brand new connection. And Jesus is saying, like, because of this connection, because of what sex is designed to do, like, don't let anybody tear it apart. Because this is, sex is a bonding spiritually and physically, like a, it's a, it literally is a chemically bonding act between two people. Same um, chemicals get released during sex between two people as between a mother and a nursing child. I mean, that's saying something, right? The same kind of chemicals are being released, released in the brain. So very much spiritually, very much physically, we're being bonded. And that's why Jesus says, look, we shouldn't tear that apart because it's going to be really painful, guys. So stop focusing on your hard hearts and stop, stop trying to focus on different ways to get divorced and just see marriage for the beautiful, powerful thing that it is. The important thing, the hard thing, the the difficult struggle, The, the it'll take lots of your energy and lots of your focus. And that's, again, to get back to our single conversation, that's why Paul is saying, look, in some ways it's actually better because you're not going to be so focused on the marriage stuff. You're going to have way more emotional space and more practical space in your life to focus on what God's doing in and around you, right? So again, singleness, divorce, not things that we need to say, well, if Adam and Eve, or if we're designed that way, does that mean like I'm somehow not fulfilled? No, because we have plenty of examples in the Bible where people didn't do it right. People sinned and got, and like Jesus reached into that story and was like, hey, I'm going to redeem this and I'm still going to use you, right? Because she went and her whole village believed they came after Jesus because this divorced, multi-divorced woman had her life changed by Jesus and just went right out and started telling people about what he did, about the goodness of Jesus Christ. It's really actually cool. I mean, that's, that's what I love about Jesus is he's just all about restoration. He's all about using people that nobody else wants or nobody else thinks can be used. But... Um, but divorce is one of those things. It is a little bit different, just like he calls people that are in sin, Jesus, I mean, just like he calls people to repent when they've sinned or when they've been caught in sin. I think we do need to do the same thing. So if we know that we've got divorce, that was a cause maybe of our own sin, we do need to talk to God about that. Like we do need to say, Lord, I didn't do that right. God, and I repent of that. And, and I want to be right. I want to have a new road forward. I want to have a restored road forward, much like you gave that Samaritan woman at the well. So, um, let's see. Oh, and thirdly, as I mentioned, well, kind of like second, I guess, um, is the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that was a great question though, about singleness and divorce. So uh, thank you for that question. Um, but on Sunday, I'd also mentioned that I wanted to talk briefly about the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the tree of life is always kind of named as such, whereas the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is just kind of known as the tree several times. It's only known as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, a couple times. Uh, a lot of times it's just the tree. And so um, let's see here. There's a quote, a couple quotes I wanted to share with you about this I thought were interesting. Um, well, one is the, the central location 
it seems. They're like centrally located in the garden, which is kind of interesting. It's like they're focal points of this part of the story, not just in Eden, not just in Genesis, but of like of history, right? They like they stand central into the story of history, which is cool. Um, but there's a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer about uh, the tree of life. And it says, uh, um, let's see, where's the beginning of it? Okay. So it stands symbolically in the middle of Adam's world. Um, and it shows that Adam's world was not himself, but life, the very presence of God. The tree of knowledge as a prohibition signifies that man's limitation as a creature is in the middle of his existence not on the edge. So the tree of knowledge as a prohibition signifies that man's limitation as a creature is in the middle of his existence, not on the edge. So understanding that the the tree of life being at the center of the garden is like symbolic to like this, you know, this, this is not you. You're not the center of this garden, Adam. My life source here is, that's what God's saying. And then all of a sudden, like, and also our limit on our limits on ourselves, that should also be in the middle of who we are, understanding our limits in humility. So it's an interesting observation that Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes. Um, another one is that uh, the tree, when you when you see this tree uh, of, of life, this is an idea that kind of gets painted across the Bible and especially gets picked up in Proverbs where it talks repeatedly uh, in a couple places you can look up uh, in Proverbs 3.18, and Proverbs eleven thirty, and Proverbs Proverbs thirteen twelve, or a few different places you can go to, talking about the knowledge uh, or the tree of life and the fruit that comes with it. And then, like I said, in the book of Revelation, you have you you, you have God buttoning up all these things, bringing things full circle. You you have a lot of that from Genesis in Revelation, and in Revelation, a couple of places I, I wrote down you can go to uh, to see this full circle uh, idea of the tree of knowledge or the tree of life, sorry, is uh, Revelation 2.7. You can go check out there. That one especially is good. And then um, Revelation 22.2 is another place. But you can also go to 22.14 and 22.19 and just, and see these themes of the the knowledge uh, or the the tree of life. I'm confusing myself here, but the, the tree of life and how important that is. Because the idea of course is that that's from God, right? This, this tree of life is something that's a, it's a, it's a life-giving nature. Um, and the, it's the, the source of its life and the, it's a life-giving ability come from the creator himself, you know, the original gardener, that's where it comes from, not in and of itself, but from the creator, like something he's, he's passing symbolically through to mankind. He offers us that life that first and foremost, that's what's offered by God is life. So just as the, the tree of life represents life being available in the garden, the other side of that coin, of course, is that the presence of the tree of knowledge of good and evil also represents the, the availability of the knowledge of good and evil, right? That those, those are also available. So you have some free choice that's being, um, being presented here. And that's, again, that, that, human paradox is the the choice that we have to do the right thing to understand or to have understanding is not a bad thing because proverbs the book of proverbs says repeatedly that we should try to attain the wisdom of god but the difference is how we attain it and i think that was the issue for adam and eve because notice that adam gets the prohibition first uh and then a little bit later 
it's Eve, the one that's curious about it, right? Because, and, and we don't 100% know, it's never said that Eve was included later, maybe in that conversation, or that Adam somehow told her later, like, hey, by the way, those two trees, you know, we got to make sure we're uh, not messing with those, particularly that one tree. Uh, that's the one tree we don't want to go, uh, you know, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, but it changes everything. You know, the, the presence of this in the garden, it, it changes everything. So Adam gets the prohibition not to touch it. Eve explores it later. Scripture says she's deceived by the serpent about this tree. And we'll get there in, in uh, next week in chapter 3. And then the week after that, actually, when we're still in, in Genesis chapter 3. But I just want to kind of settle into the, the contrast between these two. Because an interesting feature of this that it's this option, this free will option is there, is that the tree of life, which should be the thing that catches our attention, that should be what gets our, the loyalty, I guess, in this story, but it's really overshadowed by this tree of decision. And it, again, like I said earlier, it becomes a, a touchstone for like all of human history, this decision to either obey God or reject God. And at this time, before they eat of the fruit of the, the tree, they're in a state of moral innocence, not a state of moral ignorance, right? So there's like, there's some, it's clear they know some right and wrong, right? They've been told, do this, don't do this. They're, so there's a sense even in the garden that um, they're not completely ignorant of moral right and wrong, but they are innocent. They are morally innocent. And here's what I think is, is interesting. I was reading this morning in some commentaries about this choice, right? This tree of decision, so to speak. And God's desire for us, like I said earlier in Proverbs, to, to know and understand his wisdom and to seek that out. What I think is interesting, I found this quote, I just, I just wanted to read it. Uh, it says, uh, the wisdom tradition uh, in scripture, like Proverbs, declares that wisdom is possessed by God and it's our goal to attain it. Proverbs indicates, however, that it must be achieved through the fear of the Lord. Notice that, like that it should be through the fear of the Lord first. So it should be through him that we attain his wisdom, not through grasping it independently. And that is, seems to be the issue that they didn't want to go through God to gain this wisdom. Because who knows if after having relationship with God and being walking with him, like what God would have revealed to them, but they just wanted to go right after it themselves, right? They wanted to be, and this is the interesting paradox, I think, of the fall, is they wanted to be like God. That's the lie that they believed. Like, oh, you, if you eat this, you'll be like God. And he's just trying to prevent you from being like him. But they were created in his image. They were like God, right? So what would have been revealed had they waited maybe in the fear of the Lord, they would have attained that wisdom. And so it goes on. It says, moreover, there is knowledge that God possesses that man should not seek apart from revelation. So you can see, if you want to check those kind of verses out, that it says, I'll read that again. There is knowledge that God possesses that man should not seek apart from revelation. You can go to Job chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. Uh, you can go to Job 28. You can go to Job 40. And you can go to uh, Proverbs 30, verses 1 through 4. And it goes on, it says, uh, to obtain this knowledge, this knowledge of wisdom apart from God is to act with moral autonomy, right? I get to decide what's right and wrong. By obtaining it through disobedience, the first couple expressed their independence of God and obtained wisdom possessed by God through moral autonomy. It's interesting how um, that got them and all of us in so much trouble. 
because even still, it's like today, uh, I want to decide what's right and wrong, right? That's a huge, huge thing. And, and again, well, like, well, who gets to decide what's right and wrong? If I get to decide what's right and wrong, if there is no God and we have to figure that out for ourselves, how do we draw lines, right? I mean, we can't. That's the difficult part. But it's been an issue right from the very beginning, right? Go read the book of Judges too. I mean, that's the, the hallmark of that book is that everybody wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. All right, so let me close with another quote here uh, from John Calvin, actually. So I'm getting a lot of old quotes this, uh, today. So he says, John Calvin says, We now understand what is meant by abstaining from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, namely, that Adam might not, in attempting one thing or another, rely upon his own prudence, but that sticking to God alone, he might become wise only by his obedience. It's a great challenge. What if we wanted to uh, gain wisdom? What if we wanted to gain insight and we wanted to do it only through God, only through obedience, just listening to him, whether it's divorce, whether it's our singleness, whether it's decisions that we need to make at work, how we need to treat our family, how we need to apologize, something that we needed to be honest on and we weren't, something coming up uh, you know, in the future that we know we need to be honest on. Lord, show me the right thing to do. Go read, um, let's see here, James chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Uh, I believe I'm accurate on that one. And that section right there essentially says, if you need, need wisdom, ask our gracious God, and he'll give it to you. Uh, that's, that's a pretty powerful verse. If you need wisdom, go to God, and he will give it to you. Don't try to snatch it from him, but go to him to get that. All right? So that's all we got today. Um, it's about uh, 30 minutes on this one, but uh, great questions. And uh, I hope today was helpful. If it was, if it, if it was encouraging to you, if it, was, if it clarified anything for you, uh, we ask you to like it and share this. We just want to get the knowledge of, of who Jesus is out there uh, in the digital space because we do believe in digital discipleship here um, because we can touch way more people with the hope of Christ um, just by stuff like this than we can just, uh, you know, once a week or on Sundays or in small groups. Like this is, this is a, a huge way for us just to get out there and, and connect people to what God is saying about some real life issues. All right. So appreciate you joining us today. We'll see you next time. Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at quaybogchurch.org. Have a blessed week.